to fellowship together, to, to keep meeting new people and everything. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, which you will, uh, could, and if you don't have one, if you just want to slip up your hand, uh, there are a couple guys who are going to be able to bring those around to you. Um, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand, and they'll hand you one. And uh, right now, if you do have a Bible in your hand, if you could open it up to 1 John in chapter 2, verse 28, is where we're going to be. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. We're going to read this morning down through verse 10 of chapter 3. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 28. I'm going to read this for us. Here we go. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. God, we come to you humbly this morning in need of your help. We are dependent upon you every moment of our lives, for every breath, for our salvation, for all things that are good and needed in our lives. We depend upon you. We thank you for moments like this where we might be more keenly aware of that than others, or that we recognize our dependency upon you, Lord. Lord, we pray that in a moment like this that you've made that we get to be a part of together, um, that you would speak to us so clearly, that you would reveal things to us in our hearts that we can't clearly see right now that we need to see, that more than anything, you would give us a vision of Jesus that would transform the way we live our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, when we were young, uh, people would often ask us, what do you want to be when you grow up? You ever get asked that when you're a kid? What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I doubt most of you have been asked that question in a really long time. Uh, no one's asked me that question in a really long time. We kind of usually delegate that question to small children, maybe to middle schoolers or high schoolers, or when you're in college, we just change the question. But it's really the same question. It's what's your major or what are you going to do with your degree? You know, we're asking the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, when I was like four or five, ironically, my answer to that question was, I want to be a preacher. I want to be a pastor. And so you want to know what I did? I took an old briefcase, which in hindsight... Uh, might have just been a suitcase, but it felt like a briefcase, and I would drag it into my room, and I would prop it open on a small table. I'd put a Bible in there, and then I would go around and get probably the 50-ish stuffed animals that our entire family owned, and I would prop them up, and I would preach sermons to stuffed animals. And uh, it was a pretty discouraging season of my life. No one surrendered their life to Christ or anything. Um, and it's pretty crazy now, just that here I am uh, doing that exact same and you're a much, much better crowd uh, than the stuffed animals where they were just lifeless, you know, pun intended there, okay? Um, you see, what it is that you want to be when you grow up, it actually dictates the way in which you live today. Um, I mimicked my dad preaching because I wanted to be a pastor like he was. Uh, I aged out of that, and at the time, I was like, there's no fun or money in being a pastor, and so I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That was my dream when baseball became my, my ultimate sport, and so I imitated my favorite baseball players. I would imitate um, the batting stances of King Griffey Jr. and Barry Bonds, thinking somehow that imitating their stance would make me a better baseball player because I, you imitate who you want to be like. And similarly now, I mean, my, my daughter, she wants to be a teacher, so what does she do? She's at home, and she's in her room, and she's playing school. Uh, my older son wants to be an author, make movies, and so he writes stories, you know? Imitation is the sign of what you want to be when you grow up. And our passage this morning raises this exact idea. You see, we are being asked a question, but the question isn't, what do you want to be when you grow up? We're not talking about your vocation. The question is, who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be? when you grow up. And your answer to that question not only determines how you will live your life today, but it determines what your reaction will be when Jesus returns. So John wants you to have a vision of Jesus, a vision of his future coming, and a vision of his first coming. And how you live in the middle of those appearings is influenced by those visions. That's what we see in our passage. So this is what we see this morning. I apologize for the alliteration, so I promise you I wouldn't do it as I normally don't. I don't know what's happening. There's something in the Gresham water. So I just changed the last art of something else just to not scratch your, your ear, okay? But um, we see in verses 20 through 29 the reactions to Jesus' second appearing. And then verses 1 through 3, we see the result of his second appearing. And then John goes back, and he ends by showing us what Jesus accomplished in his first appearing. These words appearing, you'll notice, keep Appearing. So, verse 28 through 29, let's look at this, the reactions that we'll have to Jesus' second appearing. And now, little children, abide in him, so when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, this word appearing 
comes up five times in this section, and the first of which is right out of the gate here in verse 28, and we're told that Jesus is coming back. It doesn't say if Jesus appears, it says when He appears. Jesus is coming back. And John continues this call for us to abide in Jesus, which we explored what that looked like and what that means for us last week. And we said that the word abide literally means to remain in a place. It's like a, where your home is. And it carries with it the idea of expecting something in the future, that I'm waiting somewhere, I'm abiding somewhere as I expect something in the future. And here we are told that what we are expecting is our Lord and Savior Jesus to return. So how do we wait? Well, we see the same call here in verse 28. It says what? And now, little children, abide in him. Why? What does your passage say? It says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. What happens if you don't abide in him? Well, when he appears, you will shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's what it says. These are the two possible reactions that we will experience when Jesus appears again. We will either have confidence or we will shrink from him in shame. We get this kind of concept. If I am in my house at night and I'm sleeping and I hear a burglar in my house and I call the police and just say a whole fleet of policemen show up to the house, my reaction and the burglar's reaction to the arrival of those policemen are be very different things, right? The burglar, probably not going to have a lot of confidence, probably going to shrink back a little bit from the idea and the reality of them arriving, whereas me, I'm going to have a lot more confidence. I'm going to be elated that the police are here, and hopefully I'm, I'm more safe, right? We get this kind of idea. This is the same idea that we find here. Jesus will appear again, and some of us, we're going to shrink back in shame, and some of us are going to have confidence. So why in the world? Why would you shrink in shame when Jesus comes back? that's you. Why? Well, verse 29 tells you that he is righteous. We we know that this he is referring to Jesus because if you look on the page before this one in your Bibles, we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, that we have an advocate with the Father who's who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the righteous, right? Since Jesus is righteous and down in chapter 3 of verse 5, we see that in him there is no sin. Then when he returns to judge the world and right all wrongs and make all things new, if I am not a person who does righteousness or loves righteousness, I have no confidence that what? Verse 28 says what? That I have been born of him, right? So it seems that our confidence or our shrinking back are really determined upon the presence or lack of presence of righteousness in our lives. Well, then what is righteousness? If righteousness is the determining factor for my reaction when Jesus comes back, what in the world is that? That's an important question. And uh, if you're anything like me, the, the word righteous, you know, was kind of hijacked in the 90s by SoCal surfers, you know, and then it kind of just morphed into this sort of, uh, you know, modern uh, way of thinking. Over, it's like an overly religious word that people would use kind of in a mocking sort of way, you know, and so... The word righteous has kind of fallen on hard times, let's just be honest. And I don't think we should do away with the word, though, because the Bible doesn't do away with the word. And if the Bible doesn't do away with the word, then we need to redeem it, right? So what is it? Well, to put it simplistically, I have a few options here on the screen. They're all getting at the same idea. But righteousness, first and foremost, is doing what's right in God's eyes. So not my eyes, and not your eyes, and not someone else's eyes, but God's eyes. It's doing what's right in his eyes, right? 
But secondly, though, it's also loving the things that God loves. It's hating the things that God hates. But this isn't something I merely know. It's something I do. Right? Righteousness is not an exam. It's a lifestyle. It's not information. It's action. It's not simply knowing. It's doing. The big idea of righteousness that's really presented in the New Testament is giving of myself to do what's right for the welfare of other people. That's ultimately what it is. And John wants us to have this corporate confidence as we get ready to walk into the eternal presence of Jesus. But that confidence can often fade as we feel the weight of all the ways that we've sinned against God, as we feel the weight of how we haven't practiced righteousness, where I've done what's right in my own eyes and not in God's eyes. And when I think about all those things, it doesn't produce a confidence in me. It makes me want to shrink back. I think we, we kind of get this idea, don't we? I mean, I remember when I was in eighth grade, we moved to a house, and for the first time in my life, we had a garbage disposal. And I thought this thing was amazing. Okay, I thought this thing was awesome. And so one day, I'm out pouring fresh concrete with my father, uh, putting in a basketball hoop, and we have a little bit of con- wet concrete left. My dad goes, Josh, go and dispose of this wet concrete. And I'm like, get rid of it? It's garbage, right? Dispose of it? Garbage disposal. So I went inside and proceeded to pour the wet concrete down the garbage disposal and quickly realized that was dumb. That was not smart at all. But you want to know what I did after I realized that? I didn't confidently strut outside and go, hey, Dad, just, you know, you know I, I uh, threw some wet concrete down the garbage disposal, but it's all right. You can just go buy a new one. You know, I didn't have any form of confidence when I went and told my dad that, did I? Probably not. If I did, there might be more issues in my life, I would guess. We don't feel confidence, do we, when we enter into the presence of another person when we know that we've screwed up. Like, we don't feel that way. But even more so, just remember how you feel when you enter the presence of another person where your actions have actually wronged them personally or hurt them. We don't feel that confident. But to take it even further, this is magnified even more when the person that we enter into their presence that we've wronged is someone who deeply loves us. Right? What do we do? Our heads drop, our eyes hit the floor, our shoulders shrug, you know? We don't have confidence. We felt this way as a husband to a wife, or as a wife to their husband, or a child to their father, or a friend to a friend, or a coworker with their boss or somebody, right? We felt that shrinking back and shame. And John wants us to place ourselves into the moment when we will step into the presence of Jesus. He wants you to place yourself into the moment where we will walk through that door and we will see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine entering the presence of God with confidence? Not just personally, but corporately. This is what John's after. So how do you think your reaction will be? What will your reaction be? If Jesus were to appear right now in this moment, would you shrink back with shame? Or would you have some sort of confidence? I mean, where would you even get that kind of confidence? See, our our reaction of confidence or shrinking back, it's actually shaped by who we are and who we want to be when we grow up. And that's what we get at next is this result that'll take place. 
when Jesus appears again. We see this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. What does it say? See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Now, if I go up to you today and I say, I love you, and if I don't even know you, that doesn't mean I'm lying, okay? I can, I can love my enemies. I, I can love you as a friend. I can love you as just a general person made in the image of God. But when I say I love you to my wife, I mean something really differently to her than what I mean when I say it to you. When I say I love you to my kids, I mean something really different than what I mean that when I say it to my wife, right? We, there's different kinds of love, right? We get that. And the question here is what kind of love has God loved you with? Well, what does it say? See. The idea is like, behold, hey, look at this. Right, look over here. Gaze over here at the kind of love that God has loved you with. Well, what kind is it? It's fatherly love. He, he's given you a certain kind of love in the best understanding that we have. And we go, what kind of love is this like? Well, it's, it's the kind of love that a good father loves his kids with, right? This, this love that God has loved you with has done more than that, though. It's actually given you a new identity. It's given you a new name. What does it say? Do you see what this does? This kind of love has called you something. It's called you something. It's called you what? Children of God, and John says, and so we are. Why does he say, and so we are? Because he knows that we have a really hard time believing that. These words, children, father, brother, these are family words. Nine times in 12 verses, this is what we're being called. We're being called God's family, right? This, my friends, is the love that we sit here with today. It's renamed you kind of love, right? It's given you a new name. God's love has changed your relationship with God. It has given you a new family. You're a child of God. You're born again, and you have God as your father, right? This is remarkable. This is why J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, writes this reflection. He says, what is a Christian? The question could be answered in many ways, but the richest I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. And then he continues on, says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. He says, Father is the Christian name for God. This is remarkable, okay? God always speaks to you as his child. Always. And as you approach God in faith, you now approach him as a child approaches a father. Right? This, this becomes the way that you understand the manner by which God speaks to you and relates with you. Is, th is this how you understand your relationship with God? Is this how you understand it? Do you, do you see what this means for your life? Do you see how this means? 
John says, with the reality of the way in which you are loved by God, he continues, he says, beloved, so those who are loved, we are children of God. When? When he appears again? When, when are you a child of God? Someday? No, it says now. You, you aren't simply going to be God's child when you arrive in his presence. You are God's child now, like right now, like not this afternoon now, now now, you know, like today, right now. Right? And, and hold on, what will be true and real of us that has not yet appeared, which is, there's that word again, but we know that when Jesus appears, what will happen to you as a child of God? You will be like him. What's the result of his appearing? That you, as a loved child of God, will be like Jesus. What this means is that we will be like Jesus in the way that we will have glorified bodies that will never be sick, will never grow old, they'll never die, and we will be completely and utterly without sin. Right? So us being like Jesus doesn't mean that you will become God, doesn't mean that you'll all of a sudden be all-knowing and all-powerful or something like that, right? This is not some Marvel thing, right? We will be like Him in His perfected humanity, without sin, intellectually, without any falsehood or error, right? Physically, without weakness or imperfection, and we will be filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. Right? We will be like Him in the way that we see Jesus post-resurrection, right? This is who you will be like when you grow up. When Jesus, your good and true older brother, appears again, you will be like him. I hear people say, like, oh, I lived in the shadow of my brother, lived in the shadow of my sister. Hey, I didn't really live in the shadow of my sister, but I've heard people say that kind of thing, right? It's like we're living in the shadow of our older brother, Jesus, but it's a really good shadow that we get to live in because the promise is that you will be like him. You will. Why? Why will this even happen? John's awesome. He just says, because you'll see him as he is. That's why. That's the explanation. We're like, well, how is this going to happen? You're going to see him like he is. And everyone who therefore hopes in Jesus purifies himself as what? Jesus is pure. Jesus is, we're told, is righteous, verse 29. Pure, verse 3, in Him there's no sin, verse 5. And so hoping in Him purifies you to the point where when you see Him, you will be like Him. How? Well, just ask the question, like, how do you purify water? The quickest way you purify water is by what? Boiling it, right? You boil water, it, it purifies it. So John is saying, as you hope in Him, if He is who you want to be when you grow up, then that vision of Jesus appearing again, beholding him as he is. That's why he says, see, look at this, look at Jesus, right? It's like hot boiling water. It purifies you because Jesus is pure. So why will we be like him when he appears? Because, it's, it's a counterintuitive answer in a way, I have a true and full vision of Jesus. That's why I'll be like him. How do I begin to purify myself today? It's by getting a vision of Jesus. Right? This is the Christian life. As, as we grow up, it's not that my vision of myself gets bigger and Jesus gets smaller because I go, well, I'm way more righteous now, and so I don't therefore need Jesus as much. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is that when we grow up, my vision of myself gets smaller and my vision of Jesus gets bigger. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, talked about this very same thing in his... Um, series of Narnia, right? In the book um, Prince Caspian, you see Aslan, who's often analogous with Jesus, talking to Lucy, the youngest, and they have this interaction about Aslan appearing bigger. 
And Lucy said, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan said, that is because you are older, little one. And she said, not because you are. And Aslan said, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's like 1 John 3 kind of stuff. This is how this works. As I steady my gaze on Jesus, I find that vision getting bigger as I grow up. And John says, this is who you'll be like when you grow up, your big brother. So is this who you want to be like when you grow up? So this will be the result of Jesus' second appearing. And the only reason this is the result of his second appearing is the only reason why we've experienced this love from God, which makes us children of God, is because of what happened when he appeared the first time. And so John goes back into the reason or the accomplishment of Jesus' first appearing. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's a lot here, but what we're really doing is we're seeing a contrast of two families, two sets of children. You see children of God and children of the devil. And John, what he does is he has us look back on what Jesus has done from his incarnation, from his beginning. And he also has us look back on what the devil's been doing from his beginning. And he's comparing families. He's kind of saying, which family are you part of? We see in verse 5 and in verse 8, the declared reason for why Jesus appeared the first time. Verse 5, we're told that he appeared to take away sins. And then in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. So we have here taking away sins. We have destroying the works of the devil. And those are not two different things. Okay, and we know this because in verse 7, John says what? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And this gives us tremendous clarity as to what the works of the devil are. Right? His works are exactly what he's been doing from the beginning, which are what? Sinning. Right? So John talks about how those born of the devil practice lawlessness. And he says lawlessness is sin. What is lawlessness? Well, we know what lawlessness is, basically that there's no law, there's nothing governing me. But essentially, if I practice lawlessness, I am the law. So I create my own laws and I could change them depending on how I'm feeling at the moment. So there is nothing governing me outside of myself. That's the definition. And he says, these are the ones who make a practice of sinning. Uh, this statement that John flings out here is not, it's not past tense. It's the idea of this ongoing, habitual sin's kind of cozy sort of way of viewing it, right? He, he, this is why he says, whoever makes, not made, but makes a practice. Do you see this? So sin is not something that you, it's something you actually practice, right? You don't just uh, trip and fall into sin. It's not just a mistake or something like that. 
It's something that you're, you're, you're planning maybe here. That's what he's talking about. Right? You're, you're, um, you're cozy with it. You're comfy with it. It's home to you. These are the people that should have no confidence that they are reborn as God's children. Why? Because of what our older brother came and accomplished during his first appearing. Guys, Jesus came, you guys, the Son of God put on flesh. Why? Well, it tells you here. Why? To destroy sin, to take it away. And if what he came and took away is something that I'm not wanting to have taken away in my life, I mean, this is, this is huge. Jesus didn't just come to forgive your sins. He came to take them away. So, so that it might cease to exist and have any sort of power over you. See, Jesus died on the cross, and when he walked out of the grave, he had defeated sin. He'd taken away my sins, and it actually changed my relationship and your relationship with God. This is why Jesus, when he was resurrected, told Mary Magdalene this. He says, go to my brothers, which is what? Family language again. And he says, say to them, I am ascending to my father and what? Your father. My God and your God. So when, so when I think about all the ways that I've wronged God, I go, how in the world, when I put myself into that moment when Jesus comes back, how can I have any fo- sort of confidence? I go, in and of myself, none. I'm going to do a lot more than just hang my head. I'm, I'm going to do a lot more than probably just shrinking back. But I've placed my faith in Jesus and what he's done for me on the cross and resurrection that I'm living into what he's telling Mary to go and tell us. Why can I have confidence when Jesus appears again? Because he's done away with my unrighteousness. And he's imparted and imputed his own to me. So I don't just hang my head as I go into the presence of God, but Hebrews tells you, you boldly approach the throne of God's grace. Do you, do you see this now? I mean, don't miss this. We are doing righteousness. We're doing out of our being. It's not do righteousness, we'll see what happens. You know, maybe, maybe I'll love you. It's, it's, I, it's I love you full stop. That's what it is. And then as we're told God loves us as his children full stop, will that do to you? Well, as a result of being born into God's family, what? Freely, freely do righteousness. Do you see here in this passage how everything you're ever told to do is actually rooted in the character and the actions of God? This is so key. Don't miss this. What does it tell you? It says, he is righteous, verse 29. He is your father, verse 1. He is pure, Jesus, verse 3. In him there's no sin, verse 5. He is righteous, verse 7. So the crescendo of all these commands is, is actually in these character declarations of God. The, the crescendo of all these verses, it's actually in because this is who God is. Therefore, live this way. Right? This is what's amazing about the Bible. It never tells you to do something without reminding you of who God is. In other words, Jesus will never ask you to do something while he, I mean, he's going to ask you to do stuff, but it's while he's doing it himself. He's never going to ask you to do something that he isn't already doing. See, we practice righteousness because of the gospel. We practice righteousness because our sins have been forgiven. We live this way because of God's love for us in the gospel, not in order that we would earn God's love on the day that he returns. That's not what this is saying. 
but because we have God's love now. We are now children of God. We live because of who we are. You're not trying to become somebody. The gospel motivates our living. I've always loved the story. I have no idea if it's true, but it's a good story. It's about Abraham Lincoln. Have you heard this story? Where he's like, one day goes by this slave auction, and he was just completely and utterly appalled by what he saw, the people being sold. And so this woman is being sold at this auction, and he's just sick to his stomach about it, and so he bids on her, bids on her, bids on her until he wins. And he goes and he pays the auctioneer, and then he goes over to the woman and says, you're free. And she goes, well, what's that supposed to mean? So he goes, well, it means you're free. And she goes, you mean I can go wherever I want to go and do whatever I want to do? And he goes, yeah. She goes, well, I think I'll go with you. I go, man, that, that's literally what we're talking about here. Jesus says, do you remember what, John says, do you remember what Jesus came and did in his first appearing? He set you free. You've been born again. He took away your sin, not so you could keep holding on to it, so it actually would go away. We don't look at him and go, I want to go do whatever I want now, do lawlessness stuff. We go, no, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. You guys, it makes all the sense in the world that if Jesus came to not only forgive me of my sin, but to take it away, and if I've been born into that family, then, then I won't make a practice of sinning. That doesn't mean I won't sin, but it does mean that I, sin won't be something that I don't want taken away from me. This is why John ends in verse 10, which is actually a bookend to verse 29. He's basically saying who you are born of, these two families, who you are born of you will resemble. You'll resemble your family. And we get that, right? We resemble our parents, you know? Resemble family members. I've been getting to know all of you guys and Sometimes I meet some of you, I'm like, okay, I see you're probably family, you know? Other times I'm pretty dense. I think Sandy and Mark were singing a couple weeks ago, and my wife goes, oh, isn't that cute or adorable or something? They're singing together, and I was like, yeah, I guess. I mean, I had no idea they were brother and sister, you know what I mean? Now I see it, though. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, you know? I'm meeting you, and then I meet your parents or something. I'm like, okay, yeah. I met Caleb Brumbelow's dad. I was like, oh, yeah, I see this. We resemble our families, don't we? That's what we do. That's why anytime a child is born, I don't do this, but I hear everybody do it, like, who do they look like? You know? Oh, I see this, a little bit of this in them, or whatever. You know what I mean? We're, look, we're looking into that stuff. We get this. This is the great accomplishment of Jesus' first coming. He's taken away your sin so that it no longer is master. It's no longer the delight, but that you actually long to be rid of it, right? His first appearing made a way for you to resemble the family. His first appearing gives you confidence to enter. So what should you do? What are you going to do? I think the worst thing you do right now is go, I feel really bad about my life. I'm going to try really hard this week to do righteousness, Right? I mean, how are you going to be able to resemble Jesus? This is the question I've been thinking about all week. 
Why do you and I struggle to feel any sense of power to do what we should do? Well, it's not because we don't know what we should do. It's not that I do something and then, I don't know, somebody goes, Josh, that's not righteous. That's not right in God's eyes. I go, oh, yeah, well, I didn't know that. Oh, I somehow knew that. Why do I struggle, though, to have any power to do it? Well, it's not because I don't know what I should do. I just seem to lack the power to actually do it. Well, John's helpful, you guys, because what does he say to do? He's telling you in verses 2 through 3, right? Doesn't it tell us that, doesn't tell us we need to just feel bad about our sin and, and try harder. It says, well, we all know there's no power in shame. That's not going to help us, so where's the power? Or your passage says that we lack the power because we don't have a vision of Jesus. It's about having a vision of Jesus. That's what he says. It's somehow seeing that he will appear and seeing why he appeared the first time. And in the middle of all that, it's hoping in him. It's hoping in him. It's seeing him as he is. It's going, I want to be like Jesus when I grow up. This might help. One of my favorite all-time quotes by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's quite a name. So if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men, gathers materials, you know, bark orders to people. He said, teach the people. Teach those people to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Right, this is what John's doing. He's saying, uh, God made you a sailor. And if Jesus is the sea that you want to be on, then you'll live today in light of that desire to be on that sea. Right? You'll do things you need to do because of the vision to be on the sea. You'll build the ship. You see, there, there's power to live righteously when the very one that you love is the righteous one. Right? You'll imitate who you want to be like. So, so why do we struggle? We need a vision of Jesus. We need to see his first appearing, and we need a vision of the day he will appear again. And daily behold how his appearings made us children of God who will one day grow up. You guys, one day you will see Jesus face to face. Like you're going to see Jesus face to face. Just like you could see my face right now. Just like I can see yours. Like that's, that's real. How are you going to react? Who do you want to be like when you grow up? Let's all stand together and let's, let's pray as we go into our time of response this morning.